Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes. I am your host. Today we are talking with Ashley Marie Chavez and Logan Uhibai Oaloha Mylani Rasmussen. Ashley Marie is a Chicago-based actor and teaching artist. She is a recent graduate with their BFA in acting from Northern Illinois University. Ashley fell in love with Shakespeare during her undergrad and has not looked back. She enjoys lighting a vanilla candle and watching Arcane for the 10th time with her dog, Leo. Some of their recent Shakespeare credits include Mariah from Twelfth Night, Witch Number One and Ross in Macbeth at the Hoosier Shakespeare Festival, and an ongoing personal project revolving around Ophelia from Hamlet. Logan is a Kanakameoli or native Hawaiian actor based in Chicago. You can call her Aloha. She is passionate about community engagement through Shakespeare and is also a recent BFA acting graduate of Northern Illinois University. Some of her recent credits include Richard III at Babes with Blades Theatre Company, Always Patsy Cline at the Great River Shakespeare Festival, and Twelfth Night at the Hawaii Shakespeare Festival. Aloha can smash an all-you-can-eat sushi buffet and enjoy sappy romance fantasy novels. You can catch her hanging with the penguins at Shedd Aquarium. Ashley Marie and Aloha are here with us today to talk about what it was like to finish out a BFA acting program with a pandemic looming, and to discuss how the Shakespeare industry can do better by Indigenous communities. This is our season finale, y'all, and I am hype to share our conversation with you. But first, as always, I got a little high and Ashley Marie and Aloha enjoyed some wine. We are back with Ashley Marie Chavez and Aloha Rasmussen talking about plague stuff. Ashley Marie, what were some of the highlights of your pandemic? Uh, graduating. <laughs> graduating. Um, I think I was a little, it was lucky, but also not lucky to graduate during a pandemic. But I think being able to still create theater within my school was like, the only thing that kept me going for a very long time <laughs> and being able to find a job right after school like that was live theater was a really good highlight so I was able to do Macbeth with Hoosier Shakespeare and just kind of travel Indiana which just sounds like oh Indiana but like I've never been outside of Illinois so I was like okay but that's so cool um what were what was it like being in school with a pandemic like I'm not gonna lie I think like at first being on zoom for a year was a little rough and a part of me kind of felt like my artistry was dying because I was stuck at home and I was stuck in like these four little walls and I'm like I can't be an artist here I need I need the studio I need the space I need the lab and everything else I need the people the connection and like I remember I would watch like ode theater like videos and people just touching faces would like get me really emotional and like I'm like I miss that stuff no but like I think having that aspect at least it's the only thing that really kept me going during the pandemic especially in school and then when we were able to be in person a lot of fear of like 
being taken away from that with this with sickness like whenever there was like an outburst of COVID when we were like our senior year like right before graduation everybody dropped like flies everybody and it was just like a constant fear of like having to get tested every other day like just kind of being scared to be near my classmates I long so long to be close to them again or just close to people again and then I'm like if I'm close to these people I might get sick oh yeah wow that's so like complicated so conflicting I I don't envy that but I I do envy having that structure during the pandemic a little bit like it was hard not to have classes or like a specific purpose so that is kind of neat (laughs) that you had that element um aloha how about you what were some of the highlights of your pandemic yeah well uh, Ash and I actually had really similar pandemic experiences because we uh, were classmates and roommates at the time of the pandemic hitting. Uh, so initially, we all thought we were going to get like a prolonged spring break and we were all exhausted. So we were like, oh my gosh, heck yeah, let's get this spring break. Go-. And then it was like real and Ash went home and I stayed in our apartment up in DeKalb, Illinois, uh, and more of our roommates went home. So I ended up being really the only one in the apartment. Mm. And it turned from like a week, which was like a holiday to like a month and then two months. And I would, you know, I, I was grateful that we had these classes that we hopped on Zoom and kind of felt normal for a few minutes. Uh, and then they would call a break and I would, you know, lay back in my bed for 10 minutes and hop right back up and and try to do a, a macro scene on on a video camera for my classmates which was just the strangest experience ever <laughs> but i i was grateful because i did have uh that structure it was hard but i'm really glad that ash and i were roommates at the time because when we were able to get back into you know being in person together. She was kind of my rock. Uh, We moved in just the two of us senior year when there was like really, really scary outbursts happening, but we were, you know, in a really rural area in Illinois. So all of the restrictions were lifted and we were back in person for classes, uh, which was a blessing and a curse, I think. Um, But we got to, we got to do 12th night together completely masked for rehearsal and performance, which was weird. Um, I was Olivia and I had during the scene where she comes in in her morning garb, a full veil, uh, puffy, my hair is very, very long. So puffy, curly hair and a black mask over everything. And if you didn't know how to spit those words and that text out, you were suffocating. So um, I think the highlights of the pandemic, I'll speak for myself, was that community. You really realized during that time, the people in your life that that you value and that, that feed your artistry and that keep you going. I am not sure that I would be as confident and and self-sustaining as I am right now if I didn't really weed out the people in my life that uplift me and start 
that journey of self-growth during that time. So yeah, it was like the worst thing to ever happen ever, but it was also the time where I grew the most and set me up to be really productive and successful now. I love that. And I definitely relate to, I feel like all of us kind of found our core groups of people who support mm-hmm. us during that time. And I I definitely had to drop a few people. <laughs> I hear that. Well. Yeah. Um, do either of you feel like there were like skills gained from doing Zoom acting as much as you had to? Y- yes. I mean, <laughs> we're both making like a, ah, you know, like, um, I was super freaking scared of being on camera as an actor Hmm. before Zoom. And I had a lot of like, because I was kind of a purist with Shakespeare. I was like, Shakespeare is, is big. Shakespeare is in your body. It's in your bones. You use that text and you spit it. And, and it was, it was hard because the note that I would get a lot of the time from professors uh, or, you know, just for myself and my own work was that it was too much. Hmm. pull back too much um and so zoom zoom was tough because you always felt like you were too much and then transitioning from zoom back out into the real world they they slap a mask on you and they're like all right now be way bigger than you were when you didn't wear a mask so it was it was definitely an adjustment a learning curve but I think it was it was valuable to to test my scale Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can echo some of that. Just like, I feel like the camera, you have being subtle is the thing, I guess. And there are times when I remember Logan and I would just kind of like complain, like, they keep telling me that I'm doing too much and I'm not doing too much. I'm like literally not even moving. And we're like, no, I get it. But then coming back, you forget kind of, you're like, wait, I have to adjust myself and actually be, hmm. be, just be, just be. Um, also, I think, I think with Zoom, I hated it just because, like, the temptation of having the script right there <laughs> was annoying for me. Um, because I can just have it. No one's gonna know that I'm reading. <laughs> I cheated the whole time. It's no, that's real. I feel like the skill I gained most over the pandemic was learning how to cold read. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was such a bad cold reader and I still not the best but like having the script there I'm like okay I need to learn how to internalize this and actually do the work and not just rely on seeing the script the entire time and not going like right here uh-huh. so we went back in person especially for 12th night I'm like oh this is a monster oh crap let's do this <laughs> I had a freak out once because I lost my script. Oh. <laughs> I can't find it. And it's not in the apartment. It's not anywhere. Like a, my my script manager had it, of course. <laughs> I was like little things like that. I'm like, girl, you need to stop relying on that thing. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. I have not had to memorize a full script since the pandemic, and I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> That's intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, I went right out of, I mean, right after our showcase, so our senior showcase, I went straight to Great River Shakespeare Festival, where I understudied. Uh, And then during my time at Great River Shakespeare Festival, I hopped on to another project where I was understudying four roles in a Shakespeare show. So it was Richard III, 
and I was understudying Queen Elizabeth, Richmond, Gray, and oh my God. Okay, Gray and <laughs> who is Richard's mother? I played the role, Jesus Christ. But yeah, so I understudied four roles. Oh, Duchess of York. Um, and I actually performed as Gray and Duchess of York, but I had to memorize that. Oh my gosh. Um, so not only Shakespeare, but like four roles in Shakespeare, like fresh off the heels of graduation, of of working on another contract, and then, you know, still very much in the trenches of the pandemic. Um it's not easy, but I, I surprisingly find Shakespeare easier to memorize sometimes than contemporary work because it is so lyrical, musical, rhythmic. Um, and yeah, so I was grateful to, that at least I had a script that wasn't changing every day when I was doing Richard III. Yeah, wow. I, that's so impressive, especially because it's not just like memorizing four roles because you were cast in those four roles and get to practice them every day and get to perform them every day. Like you're, mm -hmm. you just got thrown to the wolves when you had to do that stuff. Oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> understudying has been huge since I graduated. I've done a lot of understudying. That's <laughs> very valuable skill to have so fingers crossed <laughs> holy cow well I am very impressed that that's how you spent your pandemics and it's so cool that the two of you know each other and have worked together um today we are here because this whole season is about how I feel like the Shakespeare industry really falls short for a lot of underrepresented communities. And y'all are here today to talk about how it falls short for indigenous communities and how we can do better. I guess, can the two of you elaborate a little bit more on that and also maybe talk a little bit about your backgrounds? Um, I guess we'll start with Aloha since we started with Ashley at the top. <laughs> oh, I feel like I've been talking so much, but, uh, and Ash knows this, I'm, I'm, extremely passionate about about indigenous representation about BIPOC representation specifically in classical theater that was uh probably the biggest touch point that we really hammered home when we were in undergrad for me I see Shakespeare itself not the industry of Shakespeare but Shakespeare itself as kind of the great equalizer for our community and I and I don't say that lightly like you know Shakespeare is unproblematic. Of course, of course, Shakespeare is, has problematic uh, tropes and and characters written into uh, written into his plays. But I think for young actors specifically, but for actors in general performing Shakespeare, there is such a freedom uh, if you are allowed to be free that the stories don't tie themselves to whiteness. They don't tie themselves to, to a traditional stereotype or trope for a character. Uh, because we're so far removed from how, you know, Shakespeare would have been performed in the days where Shakespeare was come was up and coming, upstart crow, you know, we we are granted the freedom as uh actors and as, you know, uh performing arts teams and, and institutions that if we wanted to, we really could uh, showcase BIPOC stories, indigenous stories in a, in a way that is resourceful and meaningful to those communities. Where we get the disparity is when we start to see 
institutions that are resistant to change or, or resistant to challenge. Some of the the most important pro- like processes of my life have been classical theater because I don't have to be a skinny white woman or man to em- empower and like empower myself to play Richard III or Hamlet. There is nothing holding us back now because Shakespeare is long dead. <laughs> His contemporaries can't say shit about what we do in our art and the rights are free i mean just to be like super transparent if you want accessible theater for for communities that can't afford the rights for new works shakespeare can do that uh i've seen companies do amazing things with with shakespeare and underrepresented communities uh shakespeare is is the ones that we bring into schools to to first introduce children to to theater shakespeare is the ones that that we bring into prison systems to reform and and collaborate um you you see not only is it poetry but it's like healing to to work on i'm very i'm very passionate about it i I'm gonna pause because I have more thoughts, but I I know this is me and Ash's big thing, so I want to hear her. I think Aloha worded it so beautifully just now. Um, yeah, for me, Shakespeare is the blank canvas. Is the let's tell a story of humans being human, being human, existing in this world, and in their circumstance. You know how like, oh, acting is living in imaginary circumstances. These are the imaginary circumstances that we're talking about. I remember like in undergrad for our like capstone year, for our senior year, I fought so hard for an entire classical season mm-hmm. because unfortunately, like I was on the play, um, play selection committee um, representing the undergrad BFAs and talking to an entire like white faculty and just kind of being like straight up like, Honestly, I understand you want to put us in roles that you think would represent us. Like for me, it would be like the Latina because they only really see me as Latina. Um, or like the one angry black woman. Like <laughs> just put us in these roles, in these shows that are recognizable that we're gonna get so much out of in Hayden Text because you're doing us a disservice rather than actually listening to us. Hmm. and guess what they did listen to me finally (laughs) and gave us an entire classical season and the BIPOC my BIPOC like cohort were gorgeous in these roles that honestly shined more than anything we've done our entire like four years of undergrad which is something that like not just the Shakespeare industry needs to understand but just like theater industry as a whole um we see this a lot with contemporary work Mm -hmm. um trying to tell our stories but not necessarily for our audiences more for the like hey white people look at what the brown people go through you know and it's like how are we gonna distinguish stories for our audiences and like you know for people like us so i think shakespeare is so universal for that just like put our bodies in these stories and i again like i'm gonna pause because again we just keep going with this because this is something like we've talked about just for so long because it's something that we struggled a lot with in our undergrad as students just mm-hmm. wanting to be acting students 
not acting student plus their ethnicity. Right. If I can expand on that a bit, because, you know, you're so right. Um, we had a very proactive faculty. Uh, I can appreciate in a lot of ways. Uh, I think it was a reflection of the outside world at the time, too, where you have predominantly white institutions. Um, for us, an entirely white faculty at the time that is trying their best to make decisions that will serve the students of color or the actors of color or the team uh, with people of color in their communities. But in doing that, what we saw in our institution, and I'm speaking with others and, and heard similar stories, that they went so far in the other direction where they were like, why would we wanna do this dusty old white man's plays um, when we could do brand new work that maybe not all of the time was, was phenomenal writing? Uh, two, and then you have, let's say, two actors in your pool of casting that identify as Black or that identify as Latinx. And you see two roles that are for Black actors because you have an entire season of BIPOC plays, new plays. So going into that process, those actors already are pretty sure where they're going to be placed. Um, and like Ash said, we we didn't see that being more beneficial than just equitable casting. There's a difference between diversity and showcasing diversity and having a diverse season and just equitably casting your very diverse pool of actors in roles that serve them, that challenge them. I know Ash and I both felt it when we were getting cast in roles uh, pigeonholed. And, and am I cast in this because of a stereotype or because of the character description or am I cast in this because they actually believe pedagogically that this will challenge me in a university setting. We wanted Hamlet. We wanted Twelfth Night. We wanted, you know, uh, Three Sisters and, and the Seagull and uh, Tennessee Williams on our resume because that going out into the world shows the true flexibility of, of being an actor on an equitable level to our white classmates. Uh, and I'm, I was surprised at first that we had to, to lay that out as clearly as we did, that we need Shakespeare in our training uh, and that it's not just dusty old white man stories, but I understood once we began speaking and I watched the professor's faces like <gasps> gasping and being like, I never thought of it that way. Um, that this is a really important conversation to have, that, that you're doing more of a service to your BIPOC actors by simply casting them equitably in any and all roles, rather than trying to find something to represent their trauma or to represent their identity. Uh, and a lot of people wanna do plays that represent their identity and that is worthwhile and amazing but like putting young actors in a university setting in that position where they can't choose and there's not a big enough pool to feel like you earned a role is not the same as having a big show like Midsummer Night's Dream and seeing someone who looks like you and sounds like you as the queen of the fairies as Titania or you know a lover so a long-winded way of saying that was our conversation most of the time regarding classical theater. Yeah, that 
resonates with me because I just did a whole season of this show and trying to line up and try to get as much representation from as many different underrepresented 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 <laughs> communities as possible I from jump was able to list so many different people that I could reach out to from so many different communities and indigenous communities was not one of them I was like I literally have never met an indigenous person in a Shakespeare setting yeah we're unicorns out here but we're loud. We are loud. <laughs> I want to see more of you, <laughs> like, so badly. And I'm so glad. I'm happy to hear that y'all advocated for yourself in that way. Like, that's really amazing and really powerful. I'm so glad that you were heard and got the opportunity to do those things. Like, that's that's really amazing. I hope down the line that's the experience for more people. Do y'all have anything else you want to add? I'm sure you do. <laughs> I guess that's kind of like when you said like um, the experience that more people are going to experience that. We had mentees um, in our undergrad and who are such dear, beautiful, talented friends of ours. And now seeing them in these shows, literally killing it because they're also BIPOC. I'm just mm -hmm. like, oh, even though I didn't get to experience that, I'm so glad that they do. And I'm so glad that people after us in this program specifically because it's a really good program for what mm -hmm. it is like in the middle of the cornfield <laughs> are going to experience this and it's okay we don't receive the flowers as long as other people are like you know getting the fruit from it that's really lovely I feel like it's hard to find people who feel that way but it's it's so true like I I think a few episodes back um, I was speaking with one of my friends and he was talking about how one of his friends was like, oh, you know, it sucks that I have to live in this time where like maybe not as many white people are getting cast, but like I understand where that's coming from and why that's happening. And I was like, yeah, that resonates with me because I definitely had a period of time when I was less educated that I was like, Mm. huh I guess that means like there's there's fewer opportunities for me like darn that sucks for me and then <gasps> later you're like actually <laughs> they had fewer opportunities to start with probably shouldn't have been as many of them for me yeah uh, yeah yeah so we I have had so many conversations like this with our like, you know, lovely white friends, especially in this industry, in this profession. Um, and they were really, you know, especially when we're in, in a university setting, uh, we're super candid when we when the announcement was made that there was going to be a season of shows that were entirely by BIPOC people, um, you know, our white classmates and peers struggled with where do I fit into this uh and then you had your the BIPOC students that were like uh do I like am, am I only getting cast because of this like my ethnicity so it honestly it doesn't the system that is built by white supremacy and the system that is built uh in predominantly white institutions it doesn't actually benefit anyone whether you're 
white or you're a person of color. You see, you know, disparity from everyone because the system is not equitable. Uh, you're not able to work with classmates that you would like to work with because your stories are so specific and don't represent a broader lens of the human experience. Uh, yeah, so I definitely resonate with that as well. It's a, it's a time of change. The pendulum swung so far in one direction because, you know, people whose voices have not been heard in the way that they should need to be heard. And I think that the time will come where we will level out into a more equitable profession, or I only can hope that we will level out into a more equitable profession because of that. But it's not an easy or clear time for, for anyone to, to be an artist in, in this industry. No, no. Wow. I really appreciate you for saying that. I had never really thought about like the disadvantages that come with saying like, okay, now we're going to do all BIPOC this. Like, yeah, there are definitely, I can see many disadvantages to doing something like that. And like you said, I, I think there is something beautiful about the idea of like, just cast as many different faces as you can in a Shakespeare show. Like that will show and reflect humanity in a wonderful way. That's really neat. Ash, do you have anything to add? Yes, I think, cause I was just here thinking like, it's so uncomfortable for the, like when white people feel like, where do I fit in these things? And it's not even that necessarily, it's like taking anything away from them. I feel like once people start feeling maybe I guess the level of equitably, they're like, oh, I had too much and I'm getting taken away. It's like, so you're not getting taken away. It's being distributed. And in a way where like, is it even going to be distributed in a way that's going to be productive? Let's mm -hmm. be honest. <laughs> it's like how we were saying like um, being cast as like this particular role just because of my ethnicity. I'm like, I probably don't even fit this as a actor. <laughs> For this character it's I'm just simply the same ethnicity <laughs> you know yeah yeah like oh, there's a whole ass character description beyond just <laughs> someone's ethnicity yeah that is very true and I can imagine how in some programs and in some communities that really does force like specific individuals into one role in every show that they do which is just not fair <laughs> at all that's why we love you Shakespeare <laughs> yeah I miss, truly truly what is he gonna do is he gonna get mad if he sees a, a plus size you know woman of color as Juliet he can't do anything no he cannot <laughs> thank goodness <laughs> no I always say when people get super defensive over Shakespeare I'm like yo you know, his actors transcribed his plays, right? Like, we don't even know if that's what it, he wrote. <laughs> we don't have to be so precious with whatever we think it has to be. It can Absolutely. be whatever we want it to be. <laughs> and I guess speaking of that, do the two of you have like plays or characters that you would like to see performed with the influence of your community? And does either of you have a preference of who goes first? 
I think Ash should go. <laughs> so, I'm kind of tired of the like the Latina trope with the white boyfriend. This is, <laughs> this is, like whenever I see things like that, um, I would love. And I was thinking about this together. I'm like, I would love to see. So I'm Keshwa. I would love to see like an indigenous, like land based Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. with the mestizo. Or like the other kind of ethnicities that we see in Latino America, because it is such a topic that even in Latino America we don't really talk about. Hmm. We don't. We we always like you know like date within our culture, date within our marry within our culture. It's like if I was to marry a Guatemalan, you know. So I would love to see like within that kind of base stuff and see how Montagues and Capulets like clash heads. Hmm. I think that would be really really nice to see. Rather than just like, um, like West Side Story kind of beat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's so interesting. It's like inter-community conflict, which we, yeah, you're totally right. We don't use that play to talk about that very often. That would be so cool. Aloha. Yeah. So I'm Kanaka Maoli. I'm Native Hawaiian. Um, and for a long time, I was super insecure about my, you know, identity because I grew up kind of far from Hawaii culturally and, and distance relative. Um, but, uh, especially in Shakespeare's histories or the more political plays, tragedies, things like that, that, that have that strain of, of the monarchy of, you know, kingdoms rising and falling. I, I think it would be beautiful and fascinating to to explore Hawaii has such a rich history of, you know, monarchy, even before that, you know, tribes and clans that that built themselves on on islands and and communicated and, and fought wars and it's so extensive and interesting. And I think doing a, a political play or a play that has to deal with the monarchy set through an indigenous lens, especially since we were one of the last self-sustaining kingdoms in the world, um, would be really, really fascinating to take a look at. So I'm looking at plays like Mackers, like Scottish play, and I'm thinking how interesting and fascinating would it be to see these characters in these circumstances through an indigenous lens, especially an indigenous culture that just recently was a kingdom and just recently dealt with power struggles and, and, you know, um, so plays like that, I want to see, uh, Hawaiian Macbeth. I want to see, uh, you know, ancient Hawaii as a kingdom rising and falling. And there's the also elements of mysticism with like, with the witches and things like that. And a lot of tragedies and a lot of plays like that. And I, I think that that lends itself so beautifully to, to my culture and I do to so many other indigenous cultures as well. Um, and I would direct it and I would play mm-hmm. Lady M immediately if anyone ever wanted to do that, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> um, Cause that is one of my dream roles. But but even more than that, I think it's important to, to not just look at monarchy through a white lens mm-hmm. because they are not the only kingdoms that were self-sustaining and that were powerful and that had influence and like educated intelligent uh you know systems of power and not always you know doing phenomenal things uh and 
I think that it's important to show both the good and the mm -hmm. the not so good and and sometimes you know scary to admit or to face sides of other kingdoms and other tribes and cultures than just the British, Scottish, you know, Denmarkian monarchy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so a long-winded way of saying, please cast me as Lady M. <laughs> I promise I'll do you proud. <laughs> I love that. I know I knew so little about Hawaii until I got on TikTok and started mm -hmm. seeing creators from there talking about their experiences and about its history. That would be such a cool way to teach people about that history while having them engage with something that they probably wouldn't expect to get that out of it. Like that's that's really neat. It's bloody and dark, but it's also teaching you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that is so cool. I love both of those ideas so much and hope that maybe that they'll tickle someone's fancy and we'll see something like them in the future. Let's hope so. <laughs> yes. Um, before we wrap up, do the two of you have anything else that you would like to add? I guess I would just add, continue making classical work just accessible and human. I think, like I said, like for me, I honestly think like theater is a celebration of life and mm. what it means to be human. So let's continue to make these human, just cast humans. Let's, <laughs> tell, let's tell stories. And we don't. it doesn't have to be that hard. Mm. It really doesn't. Amen. Yeah, I think in a in a really real way, the reason that Shakespeare seems so inaccessible for so long is built right into the same structure that we see so many things in education being so inaccessible for so many people. Shakespeare was put up on this high pedestal of like, I can't understand this crap. You know, uh, you whip out Romeo and Juliet your first day of sophomore year and there's already a wall built between underrepresented communities and this British high strung like snobby work of poetry that they presented as I think the power structures in play just more equitable opportunities for people of color to engage with Shakespeare in a way that is not just you know through a book in their classroom or homework assignments is the best way to way to do it. I think bringing Shakespeare into um, underrepresented com uh, communities, giving actors, artists of color opportunities for an equitable education that is comprehensive rather than, you know, the snuffy uh, book learning of the way we approach these these pieces of work, um, will be the first step to making it accessible. Because we can say all day for grownups like us out in this industry that we're out here, but the reason there's not a lot of us is because we weren't offered the opportunities along the way to see ourselves represented, to, to you know, be given an opportunity to play roles that gave us the confidence to continue to do what we do. So I think starting small with communities, with schools, and and really empowering it to be acting and not reading is a, is a huge way to see more of this happening, to see more of us telling our stories through 
classical plays. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you both so much for being on the show. I was going to end the season last week. And when the <laughs> both of you reached out to me, I was like, nope, this is the banger season finale we need. And it really, truly has been. This has been a delight. I'm so honored to have you both on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I love you, Ash. And I miss you. That's my best friend. <laughs> If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Aloha, Ashley Marie, and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps Bulls with the Bard so very much. And y'all, that's it. That's the end of season one, the end of a plague. Thank you so much to all of the artists who made this season possible. I know I have learned so much. I hope our audiences have as well. Looking ahead, I have not quite decided if this podcast is going to be annual or biannual. So the next season will be out either in April or in August. I do know our next season is going to be about problem plays, how we should address them, and if we should address them at all. In the meantime, the goal is to have at least one interlude episode a month. For January, I'm not quite sure what that is yet. For February, we do have something lined up and it's going to be a banger. Until then... Thank you again to all of the artists who made this possible. This season has been an absolute joy. Until next time, bye y'all. A thousand thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover never find my grave to weep there.